I got all this stuff in my pocket. I was, I was at my grand, grandkids. I was playing with them. And they, they gave me all this. Do you guys remember these things? Now, some of you guys are my age, and you remember out in the backyard, we played army with them, right? And we, we, made, we did a whole thing, right? Now, that's good for you older folks. Now, for you younger guys, you remember Toy Story? Remember the green men in Toy Story? Well, that's who these guys are. And so there's a bazooka, there's a rifleman. So Luke, my little grandson Luke, he said I could borrow him, but I have to bring him back, okay? Anyhow, let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 4. You guys all have your reading schedules, so you all know where we are and what we've been doing. And I trust that you've taken the time and have the discipline to do the reading because it works a lot better when what I'm trying to summarize quickly in an hour or 40 minutes you guys have already read through it once or twice. So having your Bibles here, great, but more important, reading the four simple chapters that we had, Ezekiel chapter 4 through 7. But let's just recap a little bit from last week. We're at a period in uh, the history of the nation of Israel that we call the exile period. They're going into it. In 722 BC, Israel, the 10 northern tribes, were carried away by the Assyrians, and they really ceased to exist from that point on. Uh, 605 B.C. was the first time that some exiles were carried away from Judah and carried into Jerusalem. And then in 597, the second deportation of the people from Judah carried to Babylon. So at this time, Ezekiel comes on the scene, somewhere during the period of 620 to 570 B.C. in Babylon by the river. You remember that. The next big event is in 586 when King Nebuchadnezzar comes up and he destroys uh, Jerusalem. He tears the temple apart and he carries the rest captive. For you scholars who like extra credit, you want to be reading 2 Kings 24, 25, and 2 Chronicles 26 for the hyster historical background of what Jeremiah is in. Three prophets on the scene right now. Jeremiah is speaking to the people in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is speaking to the people by the river in Babylon or in the outskirts of Babylon, in Babylonia, let's call it Babylonia. And then Daniel is in Babylon where he is speaking to uh, the, the hierarchy and the government and the people. Other prophets, we've studied these already, have come along with their messages. Remember, we studied Amos. Judgment is coming for your injustice. We talked about how the leadership of the nation, the leadership in the church were unjust towards the people. Joel, the day of the Lord is at hand. Now's the time to listen up. Hosea, Israel, you've been unfaithful. Micah, what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Isaiah, there will, there will be no peace until Messiah comes. And then Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and Jeremiah all pretty much said the same things. I'm here to warn you that judgment is coming. Ezekiel continues this warning like we saw last week, but he talks about it a little bit different. He talks about the glory of God. He talks about the sovereignty of God. He says, I am the Lord 67 times in this one short little book. And they shall know that I am the Lord over and over and over. And that's the message that he wants to get through. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true today as it was 
3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, Lord. We pray that you would guide us and direct us and give us something that we can use in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first three chapters last week, if any of you missed it, we saw the vision that Ezekiel had of the throne of God and of the cherubims. I asked you to do some homework. I said a good exercise would be to read that vision over and over and over again and then write it down in your own words to say, how would you explain what what Ezekiel saw if you could? We saw in those, uh, in those first chapters that he was a priest called by the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on him, and his name means God will strengthen. What came out of his vision and what he came to realize was that God is in providential care of his people. Now, the people are in captivity. Jerusalem has been attacked, not completely destroyed yet. The temple is going to be destroyed. The priesthood is gone. The people are crying for deliverance. And religion is gone. And then Ezekiel gets this vision of his ministry. It begins. He is convinced of the glory of God. He is convinced of the throne of God, the power and the sovereignty of God. In other words, he's convinced that God is still in charge, not the people, even though things look dark. At the end of chapter 1, it said, he saw, he fell, and he heard. And so he was taken back by that awesome uh, vision of God. He was told to devour the word of God, actually eat the word of God, to devour it until it became such a part of him that he was able to express it. He was so astonished by all this, we read that he sat down by the river for seven days, just sat there astonished of what was going on. But the things that we looked at, the things we talked about for us, were three things that those early chapters told Ezekiel. One, feed on his word. Two, set your face to do his will. And three, be a watchman. Remember, man, I challenged you especially to be a watchman for your house. And then we ended with the thought, some of you would say, wow, if I had that kind of a vision these cherubim and these wheels in the middle of the wheel and the throne of God and thunder and lightning and fire and all that going on, it would be easy for me to have hope, to have confidence. It would be easy if I had that kind of a dynamic vision. But I said to you, wait a minute. You know that God's love is more clearly expressed in the life of Jesus Christ, his gift for us, his death on the cross should give you confidence and hope more than any vision that Ezekiel might have had or Daniel had or Isaiah had or John the Revelator in Revelation had. The story of Christ and what he has done for us should be where we get our hope from, where we have our confidence in. So Ezekiel's been in Babylon for five years and these next chapters 4 through 24 are about what's going to take place in Jerusalem. Remember, two, two deportations have taken place. Most of the nobility of Judah has been carried away, including Ezekiel and Daniel. Yet they insist of turning their evil ways, or of continuing their evil ways. They continue in their idolatry, their vice, and their immorality. Jeremiah warned the people, don't listen to the false prophets who were saying, 
Everything is wonderful. Jerusalem is going to say, Babylonian, Babylonian kings won't come back. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Things are going to be great. Chapters 4 and 5, Ezekiel's first words to these rebellious people. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 4, it said of the people they were impotent or they were hard-hearted. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. And that's what we saw in the, we've seen that in the, in the nation of Israel for a long time. But you know what? Ezekiel's first words aren't words at all. They're word pictures. We're going to look at a siege lying on your side, some funny made bread, and a shave. Four things that Ezekiel's asked to do, all with messages. Now, for us who played with these guys back in the day, that's exactly what the first thing is. It's a siege. Ezekiel is asked to go out, lay on it, go down there and put a plate, a, a, a brick actually, on a hill, call it Jerusalem, then to start building ramps up to the city to destroy it the same way that the armies of Babylon are going to come against Jerusalem. So it'd be like a big model city. It would be like if you were building Disneyland today and you went out and you made a model of it first and then you had water running down the, the rivers of the Amazon and the different things. It would be a way to show it. And so that's what he's doing in these first few verses of this uh, illustration. But all of these illustrations that we saw, and you read, I'm sure you read them all, so you, you know what I'm talking about. None of you are surprised that there's a shave coming up here with a sword and that there's this um, funny-made bread that's going to take place and he lays on his side for a few days here and there. Uh, because I know you guys all read your chapters, right? You know, it does, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's required. But the siege has this message to it. There's a siege coming. The reason... Laying on your side is because of the sins of the people of both Israel and Judah. The bread and the wasting away, making this poor man's bread, it's basically what he was making, and the fuel there, the fuel system had kind of run out, so they were using whatever they could find. This was wasting away. And then the method, the shave actually tells you about the method. One-third are going to die by the sword from the attacking army, one-third are going to die from the pestilence and, fa and famine, and one-third are going to be scattered to the wind. And so that was the reasons behind these illustrations. So it says, take a tile, draw on at the city of Jerusalem, and build a city wall against it. Come on, guys, let's go take the hill. That's kind of what was going on, okay? Second, lying on your side. Shows us a couple things. The reason why? It's because of the iniquity of Israel and the iniquity of Judah. But laying on your side for 390 days, now whether that was consistently all day long or whether that was a few hours at a certain time of day, it doesn't really say and we don't really know. Commentators were all over the place on it, but some of them said, you know, he probably went out for like one of the prayer times at 12 o'clock every day for, from 12 to 3 and he laid on his side for 390 days on the dirt, on the ground. That had to be painful, and that had to, that, had to, that had to hurt. Later on, he switched over to the other side for 40 days. Now, what do the number of days have to do with anything? You know, some of us like to think that everything in the Bible is there for a purpose. So, the commentators really had a field day with this. 
They started adding the days together, 390 and 40, that's 430, divide by 2, multiply by 6, and coming up with all kinds of things. But here's a couple that I thought were interesting. 390 days plus 40 is 430, and that could be a reminder of the time that the nation was in bondage in Egypt. 390 days is the approximate number of years from Mount Sinai until the rebuilding of the temple in 539 B.C. with Nehemiah and Ezra and those guys. Well, that's interesting. 40 days for Judah can't be 40 years because they were captive for 70 years. So, but it could be a reminder of the 40 years in the wilderness. The Septuagint, the scriptures that they might have had on, on hand at that time, and especially in the, in the, um, in later in those days, said that, says 190 days. And so if that was correct, it could represent the approximate 190 years of the nation of Israel, the 10 tribes, lasted that long. So I'm going to allow you to dig up the commentaries and figure out what you want to do with the number of days because, quite frankly, it's really not part of what we're going to talk about tonight. But if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I can get you some commentaries and you can spend literally days trying to calculate out what does all that mean. The third, the sullen bread or the defiled bread. Again, discomfort is coming. You're going to be eating something that's not like the bread that Oscar makes. Okay, it's not going to be the, the good bread when he has that leftover homemade bread that we get sometimes. It's not going to be like that. You're going to be eating bread that the common folk eat. Now, Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was the main city. So people were used to eating better bread. But the mixture there of the components that were in the chapters that you read, we're talking about the, the bread of the common people with the barley in it. There was only going to be a small amount of it, and there was only going to be a small amount of water. And all the fire material had burned up. Now, you think you would start off by first burning the firewood that you have. Then you start to go outside and scrounge for sticks and, and stuff, and you bring it in and you burn it. Then pretty soon you start taking the oldest furniture apart and burning that. And then pretty soon the better, newer furniture apart. You know, these are things that you either paid for or you built. You're taking it apart and building it. Pretty soon you turn around, and there is nothing left to burn. And so I guess that's where the dung comes in, because that's what he was told to burn. First human, and then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, I've never done anything that distasteful. And so he said, okay, well, then you can use cow dung. But that's getting pretty bad when you're baking your bread over cow dung and burning that to have fuel. The shave. You're going to take a sword. Everybody knew a sword. A sword was a common instrument. Everyone had one. And you're going to shave your head and you're going to shave your beard. Now, for a priest, that would not be something that he would normally do. He would have long hair. He would have a long beard. You're going to shave it off and you're going to divide it into thirds with balances, it says. So this was pretty exact. One third, one third, and one third. One third, I want you to throw in the fire in front of the people and I want it to burn. One third, I want you to throw up in the air and let it be scattered by the wind. And another third, I want you to take your sword and I want you to chop it up into really fine pieces. One third that were burned in the fire represent pestilence and famine. One third that, uh, one -third that were um, chopped up, those were the ones that died by the sword from the attacking army. And the one third that were scattered to the winds are the one who escaped and were either deported or trans transported into different parts of the world. In chapter 5, verse 7, 
we see such a judgment on the nation of Jerusalem. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, you have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of the nations. Why such a judgment on this one city? When you're home tonight or tomorrow, I want you to take a look at Leviticus 26. I'm going to highlight it to you, but I think that it would be good for you to read through. I'm just going to skim it real quick uh, just to save some time. This is called the law of the land. And this was given to the nation when they were entering the land. And so now, I don't know, um, five, five, six hundred years have gone by. And here's what was told to them, to the nation, when they first came into the land. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourself, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in your season and land shall yield its fruit and the trees in the field shall um, yield their fruit. Your threshing floor shall never uh, be empty. In verse 5, verse 6, I will give peace to the land. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies out of the land. Five of you will chase a hundred. Verse 9, for I will look favorably and make you fruitful, multiplying you and confirming my covenant with you. Verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you. Verse 12, I will mock among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you should uh, not be slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to walk. Then in verse 14, he changes and he says things like this. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes, verse 16, I also will do this to you. I will have an appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, and shall consume you, your eyes, and cause sorrow there. Verse 17, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. Verse 20, and your strength shall be spent in vain. Verse 21, you will, at the end of it, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Uh, verse 25, and I will bring a sword against you and will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Uh, at the end of verse 25, and I will send pestilence among you. Uh, verse uh, 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons, which we know they did. Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not... And smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword against you. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's lands. Wow. Sort of sounds like they're getting what he said they were going to get if they did this and if they did that. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of peace. It was supposed to be that because of righteous living. The people were to be strong because of their relationship with God. We're a nation of peace. We're a strong nation for those same reasons. 
the surrounding nations were to see this example that was coming in, in Jerusalem and from the people and desire to have that same relationship. But no, instead the city was more polluted than the surrounding nations and cities. The people were more vicious than those in the surrounding cities. And so the name of God was being blasphemed. The history of Israel, the nation, is a witness to us of great truths for us to consider. Maybe as a nation, and maybe as a church. Jesus taught his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jerusalem had the glory of the Lord there, the Shekinah glory could be seen from the temple. From whichever way you looked, you could see it because it was the high point. And so that's exactly what the Lord is saying, that Jesus is saying that we should be as a church. We should be salt and light. When our light shines through our lives and through good works, people should glorify the Father. And one of the things we've been trying to do in the last few weeks, if you've noticed, is have a few minutes after the announcements of something, either a missionary, what's been going on with missionaries, or something like tonight where we have an opportunity to reach out to the community and share things. Because we think that's important, that we as a church are engaged in society. We're engaged in this community. We're engaged in it, not just sitting here, having a nice meal and good fellowship, talking a little bit about the Bible and going home, but that we're actually engaging in life itself. That's what we want to be. We want to be salt. We want to be light. When our lives bring healing and lives to others, then people will see God in us. And Robert, I thank you for that. Amen. Remind me that you guys are going to be up here and telling your story one of these, one of these nights, okay? So don't, don't let me forget, okay? Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The nation, Israel, was to be an example of that relationship with the Lord. The city, Jerusalem, was to be a model city of peace. Today, today, our church is to be example of his love and his peace. Coming from our relationship with him. Chapter 6, verse 8, he says, I will leave a remnant. Chapter, verse 9, it's hard to get the, the feel of this verse when you read it. Sometimes you kind of read over and say, wow, that, that sounds heavy, but could it be really that heavy? Verse 9, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations. This is the Lord speaking. Where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes, which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves 
for the evil which they commuted in all of their abundance. I was crushed by their adulteress. We can't even imagine that kind of hurt. Some of us have been hurt by others in, in, in relationships. Some of us have had spouses that have been unfaithful. Some of us have experienced deep hurt between people. This is the Lord saying, I was crushed. Um, those who have escaped, will re- let me read it to you from the ESV. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried away, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all of their abominations. And you remember this. I sh- I've shared this before in different talks. One of my favorite verses um, because I, it helped me get this brokenheartedness of God and trying to get his feelings on these things was back at the time of the flood when God said, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great in the earth and that every intent of, his, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The word sorry uh, is translated um, repent in the King James in the authorized version, but in the New King James, and I think also in the ESV, it's he was sorry. But the word grieved, he was grieved in his heart. The Hebrew word from that, from the base word, is really not a word at all. It's just an expression. It's a sound in the Hebrew language. And it says, and he was in his heart. That's what's happened here. That's what the Lord is saying about the people. They've been crushed. They've crushed his heart. But four times in this chapter, he says, they shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 7, you shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 10, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 13, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And it ends with they shall know that that I am the Lord. We see sometimes that the Lord expresses himself to us with great blessings, and we know the Lord was in that. But sometimes in these painful things, in these trials, we see it as well. In chapter 7, verse 2, we read this. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you. And I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. And I will repay you for all your abominations. This message actually in chapter 7 is in two short movements. The first one is very short little blurbs like uh, one-liners or PowerPoint presentations with bullets, okay? But the second one is more thoughtful and measured. And it's talking about the breakup of the nation, But as you read this chapter, which I'm sure you all did, you had to get a a grasp of how patient God is. He's been patient with both Israel and Judah. Year after year, prophet after prophet, and still no repentance. 
And still he hasn't come to the place that he's at right now. But you know, there is a limit to the patience of God. A point where man's rebellion has so calloused himself, and he's become so calloused, that there's no hope of repentance. Judah has reached this point. There is an end. Noah reached that point, or, the, or mankind reached that point at the time of Noah. This is the same situation for the nation of Israel. When this comes, as we will see as we go on in our study through the Bible, it is thorough, it is complete, and it is final. And if you look in chapter 7, verse 19, their gold and silver is not going to help them. Or today, the equity in your house, we saw that disappear quick, didn't we? And some retirement plans go away. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Verse 21, it falls on the property, the land itself, and the people. I will give it as plunder into the hands of the strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil. And they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them and they will defile my secret place for robbers shall enter in and defile it. In verse 24, worst of the Gentiles will possess and defile it. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the dogs, that's what the word Gentile meant to the Jews, and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. And then in verse 25, they will seek peace. Destruction comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Aren't we seeking peace today? Aren't we looking for peace in our society, in our nation, in our lives, maybe sometimes in our families? We're seeking peace. Look at where they seek peace from. And I'm not so sure that this isn't a good parallel with us today. In verse 26, it goes on. Then they will seek a vision from the... I'm going to read it contemporarily. I'm not going to read it the way it says it in the Bible, okay? So bear with me a little bit. Give me a little liberty here, okay? Then they will seek a vision from the senior pastor. But the law will perish from the assistant pastors. And the council of the elder board won't work at all. The president will mourn. The Congress will be closed in desolation. But this one I'm going to read like it says it. And the hands of the common people will tremble. And isn't there a trembling in our society today? These people had gone through it. They had gone through the prophets. They weren't getting what they wanted. They had gone to their priest. It wasn't working. They had gone to the elders of the church, those guys that sat at the gates of the cities. Nothing was helping them out. They turned to the government, to the king, and to the princesses, and that wasn't working either. You know, we're looking at um, our government to fix everything for us. It's just not happening. We know, and I'm preaching to the choir here, we know there's a moral problem. There's a, there's a, there's a deeper problem in, in our society right now, and it's only going to happen when we have a revival in our nation a vision from a prophet, the law from the priest, the counsel from the elders. 
the king and the princes, the government, will mourn and be clothed in desolation. And you know what? There's a lot of mourning, mourning, moaning going on. And if you, if you have time to watch the Sunday talk shows, I mean, they're just really moaning and groaning about everything else, you know. Um, um, I don't go there. <laughs> 27 part B, the end of the thing. I will do according to their way. And according to what they deserve, I will judge them and they shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord gives one of his attributes that we don't talk about too much. I will give them what they deserve. I will judge them. But it ends with, they shall know the Lord. So even in the judgment, they shall know that. Justice is one of three attributes that we tend to link together. Justice, mercy, and grace. We talk a lot about grace. We talk a lot about mercy. We don't like to talk about justice. But your Lord, who saved you, is completely just. He is absolutely just. He will, he will give out grace and mercy absolutely justly. I haven't been able to figure it out. If any of you tell me you have, I'm going to challenge you to it because if you could figure this one out, you probably could write a whole series of books and, and do really well on it. But it's one of those things that we're probably going to have to wait and see how it works out. But... He is a just God. Um, the result of his justice, though, and his judgment will be that they will know that he is the Lord. And God forbid that he should judge us as a nation who have turned our back on him and on his ways. And more and more things continue to happen that are just as strange as could be. Do you guys know that there's no snow up here yet? Do you know that we are having record-breaking temperatures in Southern California? Isn't that wonderful, beautiful? <laughs> but half of our nation is freezing to death. Minus four in Chicago tomorrow is the high. The low is going to be minus 17, and the wind chill factor, minus 17. I mean, I'm sorry, minus 50. 17 is, the, is, is going to be the low for the night. Something's going on. But as we look at history, the nation of Israel in particular, like we're studying right now, but other nations as well, there are many examples outside the nation of Israel and the Jewish people for us in modern times. God waits patiently for nations to respond to him, giving them opportunities to live righteousness, righteously. But if they persist in unrighteousness, the end will come. Remember I asked you, were some of you amazed at how patient the Lord was in that chapter? Do you know that sometimes God's patience can make us impatient? When God is gracious to somebody else or merciful to somebody else, when they deserve justice and they don't get it, don't we sometimes get impatient? Don't we sometimes want to say, get them? Lord, they've continued to do it wrong. They're continuing to live in sin. Get them. But God is gracious and long-suffering and merciful. And so often that breeds in us an impatience. What a contrast between last week's three chapters and this week's four chapters. 
We saw Ezekiel's vision, the storm, clouds, fire, the approaching judgment was coming. The cherubim between heaven and earth carrying out the the work of God and the events under heaven were all under the control of the Lord. And then above that, the throne uh, and the rainbow and Jehovah being supreme. And now this week we see in these chapters, verses 4 and 5, the siege on the city being taken care of, the famine that was described. And I wouldn't eat that bread. I don't care what you did. If you cooked that bread on cow's dung, I would not eat it, okay? I just wouldn't do it. How in chapter 6, the Lord was crushed by the adulterous nation of Israel and their ways. And in chapter 7, that the end had come on the land and on the people. But for us today, all of us, this church, like Israel and Jerusalem, we're, to, we're hearing this message from Ezekiel's day. Jesus said we are to be salt and light to a dying world. We are to be a representation of his love, his grace, and his peace. And by doing this, the world will know him. Doesn't the world need to know him? Doesn't the world need to know him? Be salt. Be light. Love one another. Right here in this room. Over and over the Lord has said in Ezekiel, then they will know that I am the Lord. Let's not wait for judgments to come. But let's do it after blessings. Let's do it after what we have. Throughout the Bible, we have seen that this is so, that when people were given victories, when people were given blessings, they would bless the Lord for a short period of time. After the wilderness experience, they were told when you come in and you possess this beautiful, wonderful land, you have houses that you didn't build and cities, cities that you didn't build, houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, cisterns you didn't dig. When you've come into that land, bless the Lord, give thanks. When we as a nation started this nation, when we came in this wonderful, beautiful land with all of its resources and all of the wonder, our founding fathers blessed the Lord and they gave a lot of attention to that. And we were blessed. We were blessed through a time and a period for a couple hundred years where we had what we called the greatest, the greatest generation. These guys from World War II, those were the guys. And when they came home and everything was going so great, for a while we blessed the Lord. But then in 1964, we said we can't pray in school anymore. And we started to fall away, piece by piece. They did it for a while. Israel did it for a while. They became a great nation. But now they're here being carried away into captivity because of their rebellion. So what can we take away from this message about these people that are, that's 2,500 years old? through a prophet called Ezekiel, had a vision that nobody has been able to really figure out what he really saw. First, no matter how strange, no matter how uncomfortable, 
no matter how unfair seems, things seem to be, remember God is still in control and he still loves you. And he loves your sister. Remember that. Don't, don't forget that. The Lord has always maintained a remnant. We saw that in chapter uh, 6. Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations. From the fall in the garden, the flood, the bondage in Egypt, the wilderness experience, the time in the land, the time out of the land, during this exile, during the silent years between this period of time when they come back and the time that Jesus comes on the scene, and through the last couple thousand years, there has always been a remnant of people who love the Lord. The principles are the same. His principles are clearly laid out for you and me in his word as individuals, as a nation, and in particular, as a church. We need to discover what those principles mean for us individually, as a nation, and as a church. If we are willing to obey those, we will be blessed. If we as a church are willing to obey those, our community here on the mountain will be blessed. If we as a nation chose to obey those, the world would be blessed. If we as individuals choose to obey those principles, our family, our spouses, people we care about will be blessed. So here's one for the church today. It's for our church and you all know this. So what I'm going to be telling you right now is not a surprise. You can't say, ooh, what a revelation. This is something that you guys all know. Remember, you're to be salt. You're to be light. You're the light of the world. Your salt hasn't lost its flavor because I know you all. And I see how you love. I see how you care for one another. But you all know this verse. Finally, brothers and sisters, um, again, I'm going to add a little bit there. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Pretty straightforward Words from Paul to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 8. So that means when we're over there having dinner, we shouldn't be belittling anyone. We shouldn't be talking about any other church in a negative way. We should only be building up. We should be excited about what went on in our church this morning. We shouldn't be critical of it at all. We should be only positive. Now, for you pastors in the room, you elders in the room, you people in some kind of leadership here at Sunday Night Bible Studies, leading a Bible study or helping out or doing these things, I want you to get this because this is what the Lord's been dealing with me this week. What's the next verse? We all know that verse. Hey, guys, think on these things that are pure, honest, worthy of praise, worthy of report. If there's anything good in it, if there's any virtue in it, think on these things. Don't we all know that verse? What's the next verse? What's the next verse? You know I'm going to tell you, don't you? 
So all of you who've been around church for a long time, all of you who have a Bible that's well marked up and lots of notes in it and stuff like that, or you're involved in, in church and you, you, you're out preaching on the street or you're serving in a worship team or whatever it is that you do to, to help out and to serve, the next verse goes like this. And you should all be able to say this. Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We have probably one of the most loving churches I've ever been a part of. We have people who care about people, and I see it all the time in the way that the buzz happens before and after service, the way you interact with each other, the way that you fellowship at dinner, the way we care for one another, the way we pray for one another, those types of things. And that's a great thing. I want to be so far above the bar on this that I just want to tell you the way it is. I don't ever, ever want anybody to be able to say about anybody from Sunday night that we were ever critical of another pastor another church, another worship team, another anything that has to do with the body of Christ on this mountain. Whatever things are pure, true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any praise, think about these things and talk about these things. And I would really like that to be what we're known for.